0: Family. Uh, I'm delighted to come to you today. This is Jim Ravel. I'm the chaplain for the company. Uh, Many of you may know me, others uh, perhaps uh, if you're newer to the company or have been driving and haven't had connection. uh, It's a delight to serve this family, Uh, have so many wonderful connections here, and I feel like I'm the one that's been lavished with blessing by connecting here with the company. I want to share with you during the Christmas season a thought uh, from the scripture and uh, I want, it's, I'm, I'm kind of a thief because I'm taking it uh, an idea that uh, came uh, probably about a year ago that I was listening to a teaching by Timothy Keller and actually the title of the message was A Longing for Home. And uh, it really, it impacted me, it got me thinking. And I think if any time you're working in the driving uh, industry, uh, trucking, uh, home time is in, is essentially important, you know, and how do you find that work-life balance? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about home. And whenever we think about Christmas, we uh, typically think about getting together with family and friends and and for some, that represents a really tremendous connection, and there's a an excitement about meeting with family. And for others, if getting together with family can be painful, and sometimes it's difficult, or in fact, it becomes a place that you avoid because it is painful. But uh, you know, many of the Christmas songs, uh, like uh, Bing Crosby saying, "I'll be home for Christmas," uh, I think it was Perry Como who made famous. Uh, there's no place like. Home for the Holidays. Well, so we're going to talk about what I'm calling and what what I'd heard taught this idea of a longing for home. Let me read you a passage of scripture that actually kind of seems bizarre in using it, but it, it was fulfilled during the time and surrounding the time of Jesus' birth or at least within that couple year period. And it comes from the book of Jeremiah and it almost sounds dark. But, uh, you know, when you think of the, the uh, how would I say, God came to earth as a little human baby. And many of our Christmas paintings or Christmas cards depict a picture of, you know, that's peaceful and serene and a light shining on Jesus, this little baby Jesus. But I think there was a lot of stress connected uh, in a time when they were underneath Roman rule. So they, it was a very tough time for them. This young couple had come a long distance. She was uh, married, fully pregnant, traveling. They get, I mean, have you ever been on vacation and you don't have a lot, your reservations get messed up? Well, they had no place to stay. So a little baby born in a manger or born in a barn. Very interesting. And then this story, because surrounding this was there were there was a great jealousy in the king at that time. The one of the, the king, uh, King Herod, who was extremely insecure, and he uh, implemented a program to kill little babies, trying to kill Jesus because he was threatened. So here's what it says: The Lord says, "A sound is heard in Ramah, a sound of crying in bitter grief. It is the sound of Rachel." weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are gone. But Then it says in the next verses, the Lord says to her, stop your incessant weeping and hold back your tears for your heartfelt repentance will be rewarded. Your children will return from the land of the enemy and I, the Lord, affirm this. Indeed, there is hope. And then listen to this phrase, your children will return home I, the Lord, affirm it. So this idea of coming home is a big deal in the Bible. The idea of having a homeland, having a place that you feel like you call your own. And the words that I just read were written about 2,500 years ago, about 500 years before Jesus' birth. Uh, And it was a a chaotic time in in Judah or, you know, which was where Jerusalem was because the Babylonians had invaded and things were chaotic. The culture was broken, It wasn't just divided, but splintered, and the people were alienated. And it's very interesting, this whole idea of alienation. Uh, in my notes here, I have a couple of uh, ideas written by a couple of secular thinkers. These aren't even Bible thinkers, but they, these are secular men, who talk about this, what they call alienation. Uh, Martin Heidegger, who was an existentialist, and uh, Karl Marx, who was a communist, said these words, both of them kind of agreed on this, that you can't understand the human condition unless you understand the concept of what they called alienation, being estranged, not feeling included, uh, the idea, and, and this is really a human problem. And What they said, and I think this is amazing, they, they didn't have a deep, they had no faith in God, but they said, we are not at home in this world. Now, the whole idea of uh, homelessness, uh, my wife's grandparents, very uh, challenging, had emigrated from, um, from uh, from Europe, and actually, at points in their life, they were homeless on the streets of Chicago many years ago. Nothing sadder than that. Or refugees, where whole nations are homeless. But these two secular people, Heidegger and Marx, say that we are living in a place that's not home. In other words, we're living in a world that doesn't meet our deepest needs. So we have to think about this: Why don't we feel at home here? Why don't we feel at home here? And then this whole idea of why—why is there a longing in our heart? Why do we want to have—why do we long for home? And then how do we get back to home? So all the way in the scripture, um, in fact, when you start from the earliest pages of the Bible, God created us for a home that was called the Garden of Eden. And it was a beautiful place. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, he talks about when he brings the people back from uh, being alienated uh, during the time of Jeremiah. He said, when I bring you back the people will say the former wasteland will now be like the Garden of Eden. So the starting point um, in the Bible is that there's a day coming, the idea where there's gladness and joy. And it says that in Isaiah that uh, my people return, they'll have gladness and joy upon their heads. Sorrow, sighing will flee away. And here's the whole thing. When you look at the scripture, a lot of these amazing promises they have not been fulfilled to the the full flow of what's promised in in these verses. Scripture seems to promise there's a time coming when the desert will bloom, when the lion lays down with the lamb, when a little child can put their hand into a cobra's nest. The Dead Sea, now I've been to the Dead Sea, and it is truly dead. I mean, it is fully dead. There is no life in the Dead Sea. You can float because of the salt content there. But it says there's gonna be a time where the Dead Sea teems with fish. And the way that these these things lay out in the scripture is that uh, these are not just symbolic things. There's a time coming for restoration that is astonishing. So here's the whole premise that we're putting out today is that we were made for a home. Human beings were made for a home that we lost. We are made for a home, but all of us are in a form of exile, and uh, we were created for the Garden of Eden. And so let me steal an analogy about this whole idea of home and, and that sort of thing from Tim Keller, who talked about this. Imagine for a moment, and I know there's a lot of this idea of space travel, I think Elon Musk is, and I think it was, uh, they're pushing for space travel. and. The original star of William Shatner, who starred in uh, the original Star Trek. I think he just went into space. But imagine for a moment that you travel somehow with your own rocket into space and you somehow take a trip to Mars, but something becomes awry and you crash onto the planet Mars and you have no breathing mechanism and you step out into the beautiful atmosphere of Mars. And when you step out, you suddenly realize something. (gasps) I'm not home. I'm alienated. Your lungs are going to experience something (laughs) that says that the content of the air on Mars has about 1.5% oxygen, and you need about 20%. And what you know is this, that you're not built for Mars atmosphere. You're not home, and so you're struggling being there. And so we're not designed to live on Mars. It doesn't support who we are. So here's, here's the whole point. God put us in a place here called Earth, uh, the Garden of Eden. It was a place we were designed for in that original garden that maximizes us physically and emotionally and spiritually and relationally. God makes his first home for us and it's planet Earth. Now let's go back to the st- spaceship analogy just for a minute. And so now you're struggling, your ship is needs repaired and somehow you've got technology, and you can, you can text back to the amazing techs in the Nussbaum, uh, uh, you know out, out with the trucks, where they're repairing trucks, and they somehow have the prowess to be able to repair a spaceship, and they get you back working, and now you're f- flying back, and you make it back to Earth, and you say, I'm home. But the question is, are you really home? Because now think about this and I like this little comparison. On Mars, you know instantly that you're gonna die. But on Earth, you don't know instantly, but did you know that inch by inch, day by day, moment by moment, in fact there's a verse in the Bible that says outwardly we're wasting away. The idea that we're breaking down, we're wearing out so is this the way, is this really home? Is this really the place God designed for us to live in a place where we're wearing out and we're breaking down? Let me read you a quote from a French philosopher by the name of Albert Camus. And he said these words. And it's, it, I'll explain the quote because whenever a philosopher speaks, you kind of have to sort of unpack the words so you know what he's saying. But here's what he said. Beauty... And I quote, beauty is unbearable because it drives us to despair. It offers us a minute, for a minute, a glimpse of an eternity that we desperately want to stretch out for all times, but we don't have that consolation. What what he's saying there is, uh, about a month ago, my wife and I received a beautiful gift for our wedding anniversary, my daughter, Uh, gave us some points from her Hyatt account, and we were able to do a week in Cancun. Well, we went there, and it was delightful. We enjoyed, we were together, we celebrated, enjoyed the weather. Literally within two hours of landing at O'Hare, we're walking to an event, it was cold in Chicago, and my wife turns to me and said, did that really just happen? I mean, the, we, we would have liked that experience to last forever, but it was like a little snippet. And it was almost like a tease that we, it's like, if this could only be all the time. Then, then Camus continues, he says, to put it in a nutshell, why do we have an eagerness to live in limbs that are destined to rot? For most men, the approaching dinner, the arrival of a letter, the smile of a passing girl are, not, are enough to get around it. But the man who digs into ideas, finds that being face-to-face with the idea of death, gives right to hatred and revulsion, and the revolt of the body is what we call nausea. In other words, what he's saying is this. When you really think about this, when you really look at this, no one's willing to face the implications of death. And so we sort of distract ourselves, and we pretend by— certainly we want to enjoy food and vacations and hobbies and travel— but we distract ourselves by thinking in terms of the slow-grade breakdown that's happening. I mean, we do not, in our culture, like to face the issue of death. One of the movies that we watched with our own children— or with our grandkids, I should say— was the Lion King and and there was a scene in there, There's a song when they held up little Simba who was just born and it's called the circle of life. Now it's based on a paradigm that's not Christian thought, but basically the, the whole premise of the song says this, when you die, you become fertilizer. That's pretty much what the song says, but it says it in a nice way because it says the plants feed the animals, then we eat the animals and the plants, be, or the animals become fertilizer. We then die, we become fertilizer and, the fer, and we fertilize the plants and then the, plant, the animals eat the plants and it's this circle of life. And oh, isn't that just beautiful? And Camus says, it's not beautiful. Death is not a lovely thought. And so here's what we're saying at Christmas God came to rescue a planet that was on the decline. And even the Apostle Paul said this, death is an enemy. Jesus came to take death head on. And the question is, why is death an enemy? I'll tell you this, because every person you've ever loved, every person you've ever known, is going to become fertilizer. The Bible says it's all appointed. All of us will die at one point. And we live in a planet that doesn't meet the deepest needs of our life. We want a love that lasts, we want a beauty that never ends. If we, Can you imagine a beauty that never ends? We want uh, significance in our work to be noticed, to, to do something out of how God's created us, having it make an impact and doing it for the honor and glory of God. But we live in a place where that's not happening. And so each in each of our heart, we have this need for a love that never ends, for relationships, that are never broken, and the world can't sustain us any more than if you flew to Mars and you breathed in the atmosphere of Mars and you could live. You can't because we're wearing down. We're, you know, we're, we're wasting away as the scripture says. There's a, you know, we have this yearning for home, so we're talking about this longing. <clears throat> and uh, there was an old, a, a movie, it's probably I don't know 35 years old now and it's called a trip to bountiful about an aging widow who's living a very unhappy life as she's aged and this idea pops into her mind where she's thinking if i could only get back to where i was originally raised this little golf uh, gulf coast town called bountiful texas and she could get back to the farm that she was raised in and she thought i could be invigorated Well, she makes this very arduous trip there. And when she gets there, all of her expectations are plummeted because everyone she'd ever known had either moved or they died. The home that she thought she had, in fact, even when she looked at the experience there, she began to say, wait, I remember this even differently than when I was raised here many years ago. And I can recall numerous years ago, I visited my kindergarten classroom at the Bluegrass Elementary School where Mrs. Telsrow was my teacher. And when I walked in the room, I kind of reflected a little bit and I'm like, I kind of remember this differently than I do right now in this at the age I am. And so what this is saying is even some of the experiences that we count as home from the past are exaggerated. And the Bible gives us something. There's this desire for home. There's something of a security in that. But what is it we're missing? We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden where God was our actual dwelling place. And in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, the, the great patriarch Moses, he wrote one psalm. He wrote Psalm 90 and he kind of gives us a little clue on this search for home. What is this desire for home, for security, for love? Here's what he says in Psalm 90 verse one. He said, Lord, throughout all generations, you have been our home. In other words, God is the home that we remember, that this yearning, this, this vacancy in the human heart is a cry to know God and to relate to God. But what we've done, and there's nothing wrong with a great marriage, great family, great retirement, all of these things, but we settle for less when we don't have God as the preeminent one who fills our needs. Because when he is first, all of this other stuff fits together. But when he's not, we always have this yearning for something and it's not quite there. So, let's go back to kind of challenge uh, Camus' thoughts where he said, I hate the universe, this is at home, we don't fit here, there's no hope. C.S. Lewis comes out and he makes some uh, really interesting statements here about this yearning for home. And let me read you a quote from him where he says, and I like this and I'll kind of unwrap it for you so you kind of, you know, we kind of can apply it to our life but he says though being hungry does not get food does not get us food surely being hungry proves there's such a thing as food you say the material universe is ugly unjust you don't like it but if you were just a product of the material universe if that is all you are why don't you feel at home in it do fish complain in the sea for being wet We feel wet when we step into water because we're not aquatic creatures. Then why don't you feel at home here? The only possible explanation is our real home is somewhere else. So what he's saying is if you have hunger, it proves there's there's food. If you're a fish, you feel comfortable in the water, but if you're not from that environment, you step in, you feel wet. Well, in the same application in this world, we don't feel like we fit. Why? Because you were made for something else. You were made uh, to, to be home, and God is our home. So the question is how do we get home? Well, we can't get there ourselves. In fact, it says in the very chapter I read from Jeremiah that the Lord said, I will deliver and I will redeem those who are from those that are stronger than them. And what happened? we were created for this home in the Garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve were exiled out. They were cast out because they opted to stiff-arm God and run their own life. And uh, we, we would call that sin. And I think I've used this before in previous podcasts, but I always say sin is self-imposed nonsense. S-I-N. It's a self-centeredness. And anytime there's sin, there's isolation and there's alienation. Uh, so let me give you an example. If you lie to someone, instantly there's a distance created. You're isolated. You move away from them, or if they lied to you, you they move away from you. You have to hide. You have to think, what did I say? I, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, and so you're careful about what you say. And so there's a distance. So if you lie to a friend, uh, that's the beginning of the end of the friendship. If you lie to your spouse, that's the beginning of the end of a good marriage, and it can even result in the end of the marriage because it's self-centeredness and it automatically drives you out and that's the consequences of sin. You're alienated. Now, in the Bible, there are pictures. God always gives pictures to us, especially in the Old Testament. I always call that like God's Sesame Street. On Sesame Street, that show, the count taught you how to count. Bert and Ernie, how do you deal with different personalities? The grouch, how do you deal with a grouch? And it's all transferable principles. And so there are pictures on Sesame, well, in Sesame Street. In the Old Testament, God would give pictures. <clears throat> and anytime you're looking for something, always look for Jesus, because he's the key to uh, interpreting the Bible. For instance, let me just take a story, uh, David and Goliath, which many times people will preach, oh, we gotta be like David, strong against our giants. But that's not what that story's about. That story is about Jesus. Because here's one man who faced an enemy that was bigger than the whole army, and the army cowered in the background. This one man wins a battle, and the whole army says, we won. That's the picture of Jesus. Here was the human race trapped. And he stood as if he were the whole race, and he won the battle for us. That's the victory of Jesus Christ. So when you look for, in the pictures in the Old Testament, look for Jesus. So here's another one. Um, Once a year in the Old Testament, the children of Israel would have a goat that they would lay their hands on, and they'd drive this goat out into the wilderness. It was driven out. It was exiled. It was banished. And it was a picture of the human race Remember, we're exiled. We're in a place that we don't, that's not our home. But it was also a picture of what Jesus was going to do for us. And so going back now to the scripture I originally read about the tears of Rachel, the tears of Rachel are going to be the thing that redeems us. And so in the scripture, three times at least, the tears of Rachel are mentioned. One of them is the original Rachel, who is the wife of Jacob, They're on their journey back from a foreign place back home, and she's very pregnant. And they stop at this place named Rama. She gives birth, but in her birth, she has a troubled pregnancy. And the last thing she sees before she dies is the birth of her son, and she's weeping because she's going to die. But she died so that this little one could be given birth. And so that's the first picture. The second one is during the time of Jeremiah that it was the very time he lived when Israel or Judah was being sacked by the Babylonians. People were being killed. They were brought again to this very same spot, Ramah, and it was a staging station for where uh, all the refugees were brought to and people had been killed, buildings had been flattened. And can you imagine the weeping of mothers as they're weeping because their children are no more? So it was very painful. So here's the application if we live in a world that isn't our world the tears of Rachel are any time we've wept or been despondent over this spiritual inhospitality that the, the fact that we're in a place that's not working right we want to love we want to love that lasts we want to pour our relationship into someone that's not going to turn into fertilizer i mean you think about this 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 is You know, this is one of the reasons why we no longer have pets, because death was so painful that uh, we enjoy, we have grand dogs, all of our kids have dogs, but it was so difficult to lose a pet because death is a very painful thing. And you say, man, what kind of Christmas message is this? I'm telling you this, this is the hope of the good news because Camus says, have the guts to face death. Realize that Just like Mars, Earth isn't the home that was designed for us. And so the tears of Rachel are when we weep over those things that just aren't right. But then there's a final picture and Jesus Christ fulfilled uh, this, this brokenness in this world by coming. And in Matthew 2, it takes this very scripture and it says this, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. So what he did, he took soldiers to go all around Jerusalem or Bethlehem, excuse me, and all the two-year-olds and under were absolutely killed. Can you imagine that? And it says Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, cry was heard in Ramah, weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. So what it's saying is Jesus Christ fulfilled this scripture. And you say, well, how did he do this? Well, they were trying to execute the Messiah, this insecure leader. And Jesus Christ, when he was a little toddler, think about this, we're talking about the human race in exile, Jesus goes into exile. And he and his family have to exile to Egypt. They lived in Africa because they're trying; they're escaping. And when you when you study, see, Jesus Christ came to not only die our death, but live through things to overcome on our behalf. So, did you, did you think about this: Jesus Christ lived as a homeless person, a person without a home his whole life. He said, "This foxes have holes, holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." Here was a man who lived in exile. Here was God in the flesh. His family called him crazy. The authorities tried to kill him. He lived on the run. He continually lived in exile. And then, right before the crucifixion, he's coming into Jerusalem. And it says he's weeping. Remember the tears of Rachel? He's weeping. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wished I could have taken you under my wings. See, that's the language of a mother bird, which is a bold statement. You have Jesus Christ weeping like a mother deliberately weeping because he is, think about this, the ultimate Rachel. Just like the original Rachel wept, died, and gave birth so that life could come to her son Benjamin. This one died for us, died so that he could give birth and we could be born again, become brand new people from the inside out, brand new. And it says in the book of Hebrews when he was crucified, it uses this language, talking about being kicked to the curb, you know, not in a place that he was even welcomed. It says he was crucified outside the camp, outside the gate. He was the true scapegoat that was exiled. He took our exile. He took our penalty. He took our sin. And right before Jesus was crucified, he took our homelessness. And he said this to the disciples and to all of us, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms or many mansions, some translations say, but the idea is I'm preparing a spot that you'll never, ever experience the pains of this world anymore. And this is the most amazing thing. You can build a beautiful home, it's not gonna be enough, it'll crumble. You can have an amazing family and put your hope on all that, it'll never meet your deepest need. You can find the love of your life but one of you are going to become fertilizer. One of you are going to die, then the other one's going to die. Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house and I'm preparing a place for you. And the best mothers and fathers, the best homes, the best families are dim echoes of what God has prepared for us. The best Christmas gatherings, the best local churches, or when we get together with friends and family. That's a dim echo of what God's purchased for us. But if you if you don't Make him your home. You'll be on this journey your whole life to find a satisfaction that you'll never find anywhere else because Jesus opened the door. Now, it's an amazing thing because not only does God want to take us home, but God wants to come to live with us. And so he's going to make all things new. Not all new things, but he'll retool this earth because heaven will come down out of... Uh, uh, out of, uh, heaven will come down and merge with earth. And here's what it says in the book of Revelation. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things will be gone forever. So the great, what do you give to somebody that has everything? You know what you give to God? You give your heart. You give your heart, you give your life. It's like that song, that famous song that actually was not written as a Christmas song originally but it was stolen by Christmas. The song Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord, and I like how the writer of the song framed this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, not has come, is come. In other words, God has come in the birth of a baby, but He is here now because Jesus is alive. And on my insignia for corporate chaplains is these two words I am, that God is in the present and He wants a relationship with every person and He's prepared a place for us in the future, but in the moment, He's encouraging us to welcome him into our life. So it says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And that's what we want to do this Christmas. Is that's what I'm encouraging to do, you to do is know this, that Jesus came as a homeless person. So you can have a home. And as we're waiting for that home, We have the reality of his astonishing presence to walk with us, to fill us, to strengthen us, to help us get us through. I mean, he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And it says this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 14. Here's what it says. The world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home that's yet to come. Before I pray, let me read you the song with the words of this Christmas song that says, O come, O come Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel Israel, that mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to us. And so that's the message that I have for for you today. O God. You have been our home for all generations. This is the most shocking message, that God would show up in his creation and he'd come looking for us. And he rose with a body that has scars in it. And those scars, they're healed, say, he took the wounds and the brokenness of this planet. And they shout to us that he wants every person. And it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. So let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you came and identified in ways on this earth that we have yet to even delve into and understand. We thank you, Lord, that you took on yourself our spiritual exile. The sense that we're in a place that's not really home and you came to rescue us and you died our death and you shed your blood and you rose again and you offer hope. Lord, I thank you that you're the God who is in this present moment. You see different people, different ones listening to this pro- uh, the podcast or this, uh, this recording. Some, Lord, who have just angry feelings about who you are and they're, they're frustrated with kind of how life has unfolded. Would you reach into them and show the tenderness of your power? Lord, there are others who honor you but hold you at a distance. And I pray they would open their heart and there would be a place for you at the center of their life. And then for other, others who will be celebrating at Christmas with family and friends and laughter and joy. And I pray, Lord, we'd not look at those gatherings, but we'd look through them and to say, Oh, Lord, this is only a dim echo of the amazing, eternal relationship, and home that you've prepared for us. And we pray your blessing now, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, let me just mention, if you need, uh, we're we're available 24-7. My contact phone number is area code 877-322-CHAP. That's 877-322-2427. My extension is 5017, and I'd love to chat with you. And I always tell people, hey, I have an answer for everything, and one of them is, I don't know. However, we are connected to the one who does. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You've been listening to Terminal Exchange, the official podcast show of Nussbaum Transportation. NewsBomb is an industry leader in over-the-road freight transportation. For more information on Nussbaum's award-winning truckload services and top-paying driving careers, go to Nussbaum.com or NussbaumJobs.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Terminal Exchange. New episodes arrive every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts and share a little love by writing us a review. Then, Go deeper into each exchange or listen to previous episodes at our podcast page, TerminalExchange.org.